Amen. So let me ask you the question, do you follow a favorite sports team, any of you here? Um, you know, uh, if you know me, you probably know that the New York Yankees have always been uh, my team. You know, it's uh, for better or for worse, um, our whole family's kind of connected our loyalties to them, and um, it's not so good this year in particular, but, uh, but geographically it kind of makes sense because the Bronx Bombers are are the team that's closest to Carmel. And, um, and I got a friend in Long Island, right? And regrettably, he's a Mets fan. Um, and, and I got friends from South Jersey, and they flock to Philadelphia to see the Phillies. And uh, by the way, I am, I am a Phillies fan this week. Uh, I am rooting for them to take down the Astros and win the World Series. Um, but oftentimes, there is like a regional connection between where you're from, and, and what team you follow. And, and there's a little bit of banter, right, between fans, but at the end of the day, we all kind of know that whatever team you follow, it's, it's up to you. It's, it's just a matter of personal preference. And, you know, a lot of people um, look at faith the same way. They, they see and view that choosing faith is the same way that you choose a, a sports team. So, we say, I follow my faith, and, and you follow your faith, or, or you follow no faith at all if that's what you decide. But whatever it is that you end up with, the assumption is usually that ultimately what matters most is that it's your personal choice. And that is the one factor that makes it all okay. Um, so we also recognize, though, don't we, that we're not always able to make decisions based on um, having options based on personal preference. Like, for exi- example, if you've been rushed into the ER, right, and you are there in a gurney or whatever, you're, you're rarely in a position to choose options. So most of the time, you'd be grateful to find out there's even one option, that there's one solution to the condition that brought you into there. And so, um, so the fact that there's not a choice of different options, that there's only this one specific medicine, take this or undergo that procedure, do that, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's something you're grateful for because there is a solution and, and that's enough. Um, so the question I want to look at this morning is when it comes to faith, which one of those two scenarios best fit? Is, is choosing faith like choosing a sports team or is it more like a remedy for a code red emergency. So, so we're in the fourth week this week. We've been looking at a series called What About That? And, and we're wrestling through some of the different barriers to belief when it comes to the Christian faith. And, and the question this morning is, what about all the other religions, right? Because there's, there's a lot of them out there. You know, um, three quarters of the world um, practice one of the five major religions. Those are Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. And in addition to those, there's also 4,000 other recognized religions around the world. And so you can look at that and say, man, there, that's a lot of teams to choose from, a lot of different jerseys I can put on. So, so why does it matter which team you pick, right? Isn't it enough just to be a loyal fan of whatever faith you choose? That's, that's the question, and, 
And the issue really that we're wrestling with has to do with the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that the Christian faith is a faith that's grounded into this audacious claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And and I am fully aware, even in a room this size, how challenging it is to even say that, right? could even be seen as offensive to claim to make that claim. And some of you might have just like twitched a little bit when, when you heard those words come out of my mouth. But, but it's clear and it's consistent throughout the New Testament. And, and so what I want to say is, even if you don't agree with that premise, maybe it would be worth the time to kick it around a little bit, to examine it, to understand it, to process through it a little bit. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And and we're going to start out uh, by unpacking why we arrive at that that claim and where it comes from. So so it actually traces back originally to the Jewish faith uh, that Christianity rose out from. So, So prior to Judaism... Uh, people basically worshipped the local deity of whatever region uh, they lived in. And, and the gods came with boundary lines. They had limits. Their domain only extended to a certain point, and then when you entered into a new region, you worshipped a different deity. That was the way it worked until this God came and revealed himself to Abraham. And the thing about Abraham's God is that he claimed to be sovereign, to have unlimited global dominion. No boundary lies applied to him, and he claimed to be the Lord of the whole earth, the entire world. And not only did he make that claim, he backed it up, and he proved time and time again that, that those local level deities were, were no contest for him. Uh, these opposing gods were, were never once a factor in whether the Israelites um, came out victorious or they, 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 they were defeated. The issue every time had to do with one factor. It was whether God's people chose to be faithful and obey the Lord, or if they chose to compromise and disobey him. Um, and that was something they kind of had, had a bad habit of, of doing just that. And, and that was the only issue that you find in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, and he claims not only to just be Israel's Messiah, he wasn't just Messiah of one nation. He presented himself as the savior of the whole world. And Christians believe that he certified that claim when he conquered death and rose back from the grave. And right before he ascended back to heaven, he he left his disciples with this mandate. And, and, And so I want you to just listen to the last words that Jesus left his first followers with. He says this, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's at the end of Matthew. And that that mandate has been... um, known and called over the generations as the Great Commission. That's what uh, we call it. And, and, and what that means is when you look inside the heart of an authentic follower of Christ, what you find 
is a heart that beats with this deep desire. It's, it's a desire that's been planted by the Holy Spirit to, to make Jesus known to others. That's the heartbeat of the Christ follower. And so if you're here this morning and you're a seeker and, and you don't consider yourself to have crossed that line of faith, and this, this whole Christianity thing is just like confounding to you, I don't understand them, they confuse me, maybe that'll just help a little bit to make sense of what makes us tick. This is a big part of it. Uh, As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be an overstatement to say that knowing Jesus and making him known, that pretty much sums up what the Christian life is all about. That's that's how core this Great Commission thing is to Christ followers. And, and, and don't get the wrong idea. It's not like it's some kind of obligation, like we have to do this. It's, it's more like an invitation. It, it's an opportunity to partner with God, our Heavenly Father, and, and sharing the good news about His Son with, with anyone and everyone. That's, that's how this whole thing works. So agree with that or not, being a faithful follower of Jesus is all about going everywhere and telling everyone and extending this invitation to follow Jesus and to hand out that invitation to all people in all places and making disciples of all nations because according to Jesus, there is not a single square inch on the world map that he doesn't want to see that invitation extended. Okay, so, so, so that's how the Christian faith kind of sets the paradigm. And, and I don't have to tell you, that's kind of where the rub comes in, right? Uh, because we live in a culture that very often, it seems like, hears things like that and, and pushes back on it and says, that's, that's dangerous. That's oppressive. That's, that's intolerant. That's even hateful. In, in fact, you may be here this morning, you've just said, wow, that pastor just summed up everything that's wrong about Christianity. Um, that's often how this viewpoint is, is seen, because the reasoning often goes that that kind of exclusivity, the kind that invites others to join me rather than just embracing and uh, celebrating them, that, that takes the whole thing out of that category of personal preference. And And in our culture, at the end of the day, that's seen as just simply unacceptable. And and I would say this, let it not be lost. The irony that it is intolerable for the sake of tolerance. Let let that not be lost, but I I won't camp out on that. So um, what's acceptable instead is kind of more like absolute affirmation. So... So what we're often told to ascribe to is basically whatever faith anyone picks, it doesn't matter, it's all okay. And so that's the question. Is it? Is it all okay? That's, so we, we've looked at the Christian, uh, the Great Commission that compels Christians. Let's, let's, let's go on and examine uh, the cultural creed. And when I talk about examining, that's what I... That's what I hope I'm encouraging all of us to do over these uh, weeks as we're going through this series, to, to take our assumptions and to examine them. 
put them in the light, see if there's anything to them, kick them around and see if there's actually any substance to that. So, so, so we're going to do that with this cultural creed of anything goes. And, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying this. Exclusivity, um, it's, it's not just something Christians believe. It's a, it's a foundational tenet of three out of the five world religions. So Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all make exclusive claims about salvation. And, and I'd also say this, that in many parts around the world, many areas around the world, they don't see that as a problem. That's an assumed reality. That's kind of the way the world works. But it, it seems to be a problem here in the Western world, in America, where we are quite convinced in maybe an ethnocentric way that West is best, and we know what's best for everybody else. Um, so we're going to kick that around a little bit. And uh, let me start by, by, by sharing the story. You've probably heard this story uh, about that group of blind men, and they're all standing around an elephant, and each one describes an elephant based on where that person is standing at. And so the one who's standing at the tail end says, I know what an elephant's like. It's, it's thin, like a snake. And then the one at the leg says, no, you're wrong. The elephant is thick, like a tree. And then there's one at the side, and he says, guys, you're both wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. An elephant is hard. It's like a wall. And of course, we know that they're all right, and they're all wrong because each one is only explaining the part. They're not seeing the whole, right? You, have you heard this story? Uh, according to the moral of this story, just like with the elephant, we're told that it's only as we piece the different religions together that we're able to get the full composite, the big picture of what God is fully like. And so the reason it goes, that's why we need to be tolerant. This is why we need to be accepting, because only when we do that can we hope to get the complete picture of God. Okay, so if you've heard that story, you know what I'm talking about. What I want to say is there's a big problem with that illustration. Uh, there's actually a fatal flaw baked into the very premise of it. So here's what it is. The only way that that story makes any sense at all is if you're able to see the full elephant, the elephant that those poor blind guys can't make out. They don't see, but you do, right? It only works if you have the complete picture of who God is in full. And the person, whoever it is that's telling that story, presumes to have that knowledge. So do you see where this is going, right? The, the very thing this story is telling everybody else not to do, the story does itself, right? You only see the part. I see the whole for sure. That, and, and, and it says, I know for sure that God is the sum total of all the different belief systems. And so if you're hearing that story and you're responding to it, the follow-up question, the obvious question would be like, how do you know that? And what's the answer to that? You don't. And there's nothing self-evident about, about God being the sum total of every system of belief. And, and that's the problem. It's an assumed thing. It's not a self-evident thing. So, so, so back when I was a kid, uh, I would rush home from school, turn on the TV to watch one particular channel, uh, one particular show on channel five. And there may be one or two of you here who 
might have caught this show. It was called What's Happening. Great show. Great show. Uh, at least when I was 12 years old. Um, but there's this one episode where one of the characters, his name was Rerun. You remember Rerun? He was a fun, happy guy. But poor Rerun, he got himself wrapped up in this cult. And this cult sat in a room, sat around a table, and they worshipped a head of lettuce that someone had bought at the grocery store, right? And, and that was what this episode re- revolved around. And, and, and guess what? His friends weren't okay with that, right? They didn't say, oh, it's okay. It's, it's up to you. Whatever you want to do, it's all good. They, they didn't do that because they understood the obvious, that worshiping a head of lettuce is ridiculous. And so they intervened. They busted rerun out. And, and so one day, if, if you ever find me worshiping a head of lettuce, I need you right now to promise me that you're going to do the same thing, right? Please don't tell me something ridiculous like it's okay or it doesn't matter. It matters, doesn't it? Isn't that self-evident? The object we choose to worship matters. Um, So we're kicking around this cultural creed. Another variety of the cultural creed sounds something like this. When you boil it all down, all religions are basically the same. Have you heard that one? Yeah. Yeah, You know, they'll say, yeah, sure, there's a few minor differences, but really, the essence and things, they're all they're all the same. And so, and so they, the summary is we, we're all on our own paths, uh, but we're all finding our way to the same destination. That's, again, it's an assumption that's spoken as if it's an assumed, you know, a self-evident reality. Um, but here's the thing. When you actually examine the world religions, when you take their claims and you put them up side by side, you will find, and it doesn't take more than five minutes or so, that there are irreconcilable differences between all of the major religions. And it's, it's not something that's hateful to say. It's obvious. Uh, in a Newsweek article, um, the article is called True or False, All Major Religions Are Basically the Same. Uh, Stephen Prothero, he's from Boston University, and um, I put the quote up here. He, he, he writes this. He says this. Religious people agree that there is something wrong with this world, but they disagree as soon as they start to diagnose the problem and diverge even more when it comes to prescriptions for the cure. Christians see sin as the human problem and salvation as the religious goal. Buddhists see suffering, which in this tradition is not ennobling, as the problem and liberation from suffering, which they call nirvana, as the goal. So if practitioners of the world's religions are all climbing a mountain, then they're ascending a very different peak and using very different tools. And he goes on and says, you would think that multiculturalists would warm to this fact, but instead they try to flatten out diversity by pretending that the differences are more apparent than real. How fulsome is religious diversity if all the religions are essentially the same and a little interfaith dialogue can talk it away. He concludes with this, understanding real religious diversity, the undeniable differences demarcated by religious boundaries, it's essential to understanding the powerful role religious beliefs, practices, and institutions play in the world today. 
So if you think about it, here's what he's saying, that, that the effort that we see so many times that pushes to say all religions are the same, it's not promoting diversity, it's actually destroying it because you can't just explain them away. They are real and they are there. And so one example, um, the, the God of Hinduism, um, they believe in an impersonal God. It's not even a person, it's a thing. It's like a force and everything is God and they even believe we are gods, right? So if you contrast that with the God of Christianity and the God of Judaism, believes that God is personal, that he can be known, that there is a clear distinction between creator and creation. And so when you put those two sides to side, you just, you cannot say that they're the same. They're irreconcilably different. And, and, and that's kind of the starting point uh, for discussion. That's, that's the thing. That's where diversity starts, when we're actually honest about the differences, instead of trying to homogenize them away. And so I will tell you, in my life, there are many people who hold different points of view on matters that I think are very important, eternal matters. And so I think they're wrong, and they believe I'm wrong. And guess what? We can disagree without hating each other. It's, it's, it's this amazing thing, because those points of disagreements, that's where dialogue starts. So, you know, if someone says, uh, you know, I don't believe the resurrection is real, I can say, uh, let's, let's sit down. Let's, let's talk about that. I, I want to hear why you hold that viewpoint. And we can interact on it. We can respond. It, 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 it might sound like a pipe dream to you here, but here's what it's called. It's called civil discourse. And that's the way people used to work through areas of disagreement before, before everyone started canceling each other and labeling each other. You know, if you hold an idea that I don't like, you're a hater, right? And, and so there's a better way to go about it. And, uh, and, and I will tell you personally that I have so much more respect for someone who will come up to me and say, I think what you believe is ridiculous, than I do for someone who says, well, that's fine if it works for you. Because they're just engaging in very different levels. One is actually willing to engage, and the other's just, just not. Um, be that as is may, exclusivism, maybe, as we're processing through this cultural creed, maybe it doesn't equate to intolerance, to, to hating. And so, to close, what I want to do is look at the exclusive claims of the Christian faith in particular. And so I've chosen a passage that I think draws it out in a very, um, in a very obvious way. John chapter 8, and uh, I'm going to read just uh, starting, in, starting in verse 12. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, and it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. All right, so let's just stop there and just like 
look at the claims Jesus makes. Look at what he says about himself. It's kind of outrageous, right? There's, there's no other way to describe it. In fact, Jesus made claims that no other religious leader ever dared to make. So here he says, I am the light of the world. You know, so you can compare this to what Buddha said. Um, Buddha said something like, be lamps unto yourselves. He never said, I am the light of the world. Um, and and this, was a, this was an audacious claim. It bothered the Pharisees so much that they're like, we don't believe you. You need to give us some kind of witness, some kind of corroborating testimony if you expect us to believe you. And you see how Jesus responds? He says, even if I don't, even if I just give you witness from myself, that's enough because I know where I'm from. I'm from the Father, and he affirms me. Um, The question is, like, who says that, right? If you hear me say that about myself, I hope you get up and run out the door. Um, You know, I I wouldn't say that. Maybe Kanye would, but that kind of makes the point, doesn't it, right? See, Jesus... Jesus claimed an authority that belonged to God alone. He claimed to be God's one and only son. He claimed to live in perfect submission to the heavenly father. And when you consider those claims, what you're left with is you realize that the the options about who Jesus is, they get real narrow real quick. So when we ask, you know, hey, who is this Jesus? Um, the option of just saying, yeah, Jesus was a good guy. Jesus was a moral teacher. Those, those are no longer open to us in light of the things like that, he said. So C.S. Lewis says, you basically narrow down to three choices. Jesus is either, number one, he's a liar, and what he said is just completely wrong. Uh, second choice is he's a lunatic, and he's completely out of his mind. Or the third choice is he's Lord. He's exactly who he said he was. And he goes on and says, you must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. It's true. So, so that's the incomparable Christ who makes this, this incredible diagnosis about, this diagnosis about what's, what's wrong. And, and in every religion, if you look at the religious system, it's going to answer that question, what's wrong? Uh, because we all know something's wrong. And, and this is what Jesus diagnoses as the issue. And it says, he, he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews asked, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Uh, Three times in that passage, he diagnoses the issue you will die in your sins. See, the problem, according to Jesus, what's wrong is is sin. That's that's a condition that every person on this planet has been inflicted with. And according to Jesus, 
It's fatal. It's a sickness unto death. And, and sin at the very core of things is it's an attitude of the heart. It's, it's that attitude that says, no thank you to God, to the God who created us, who made us and designed us to do life with him. It pushes back on God and says, no, I've got my own plans. I want to do my, my own thing. And, and so here, Jesus is, he, he's dialoguing with Jewish Pharisees. And, and to put that in perspective, these would have been the good guys, right? These aren't the bad guys. These are the guys who, who went to church, they brushed their teeth, they ate their veggies, they did all the right things, and yet, just like us, they wanted to be their own God instead of letting God be God. And, and that, according to Jesus, is, is the problem. It's a sickness. And we're all infected, and the condition is fatal, but there is a remedy. And the remedy is Jesus. You see, this is, this is where the fine points of distinction come in that are so important because every other religious leader gives you a list of rules. Follow these, and if you follow them enough, you'll get out and you'll be saved and you'll be well again. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't give us a list. He doesn't give us, a hand us a remedy. He is the remedy. He gives us himself. He says, believe in me. That's the solution. That's the solution. So, so, so to put this in perspective, right, what Jesus is saying that it's not like choosing a team that gets you on a path that eventually brings you to God. If, if that were the case, then, then Christianity, if it claimed that, yeah, there's different paths to God, we're all on our, path, our own path, but the Christian path is best, then that would be a problem. That, that would be arrogant. But that's not what, what's said here. Um, what it's saying is that there is a sickness. The sickness is sin, and Jesus is the only solution. Because Jesus came to do something that no other religious leader ever came to do. And so is that exclusive? It is. Is it arrogant? I, I hope not. Is there anything arrogant about providing a remedy that resolves this issue that's fatal? Right? No other person does that. No other religious leader claims to do that to do what Jesus did, and he gave us himself. And, and so at this point, the, Paris, the Pharisees, they're still just, they're confused. They do not get it. Maybe you're here and you're that same way. I don't get it. That's, that's okay. Um, I'm just glad you're here. And like the Pharisees, they keep the conversation going, and this is how Jesus ends it. He says, uh, says they did not understand what he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. So Jesus talks about the, the Son of Man being lifted up. He points them to the cross where he was going. He says, when you see me hanging on that cross, it's all going to get clear. Then you're going to understand. Then it will all make sense. And so 
when you look at the cross and you say, what is that all about? Why did Jesus die on a cross? What does it mean that the sinless Son of God left his glory in heaven, came here to this broken down planet filled with broken down people, and then willingly went to the cross to suffer and to die? See, that's where the remedy was won. And and that's why it matters. And so if you say, well, Buddha died for my sins. I'm trusting in him. He never claimed to do that. Mohammed never claimed to die for your sins. And that's why there is one remedy to one solution and diagnosis. And that's, and that's why it all matters. And you see, if, if what you believe doesn't matter, if it's nothing more than just pick a team to follow, then you got to look at the cross and you see Jesus hanging there. You say, what what the heck is that about? Why did you do that? What an awful mistake for Jesus to go to the cross and suffer and die. You didn't have to. There was another path to God. Thanks, Jesus, but you, know, you really didn't have to go to that extent. Jesus did. He went to the cross. He died for our sins so we wouldn't die in our sins. And he died to give his life to solve that sin issue and accomplish our remedy. And so every other religion teaches you that this is what you need to do to work your way back to God, follow the rules, keep on trying, you'll get there at some point. Christianity is exclusive in that it's the only religion that doesn't give us rules to follow, it gives us a savior to receive, to trust in, the one who did it all. And so other religions say, do, Christianity alone says, done. And in my life, I've I found that compelling. I find that compelling. You know, Buddha's last known words was, never stop trying. Jesus' last words before he died on the cross was, it is finished. That's, that's just the distinction. And I believe that Jesus went on the cross, that he did on the cross everything that needed to be done, and that he did it for me. And I want this morning, at the bottom of my heart, nothing more than for every one of us who are listening here uh, to believe in that same Jesus and trust him and receive him as well. And you know, there's, there's I guess we say, there's, there's a lot at stake. We're talking about issues of eternity. This is an issue of life and death. And sometimes for the challenge for us is to, we've got to push ourselves past the point of, this is really what I'd like it to be, right? Get out of what we would like it to be and deal with the reality and what it actually is. So I will tell you, my life would be a whole lot easier. I would be a whole lot more popular if I just went out and said, there's many paths to God, whatever it is, you're all good. Um, I would like to, but I can't. It's not true. And I believe that were I to say that, I would be leading people down a path of destruction. And so just as Jesus is upfront, crystal clear about who he is, throws it out there, and look at, the, look at this last verse. As he was 
straight up about it. He was saying these things that says, many people believed in him. Many people believed in him. I pray that's the case here this morning. If you are here this morning and you haven't crossed that line of faith, that today would be the day where you give your life to Jesus and you believe in him and what he did and respond personally and receive him. That's just a prayer away. Let's pray.